If you wouldn't mind, let's stand for the reading of the word tonight. I'm going to read out of Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 3. should be on the screen. Well, it just jumps right in there, doesn't it? And Saul approved of his execution. There arose on that day a great persecution amongst the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the region of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women, committing them to prison. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. All right. I feel like you guys are like way over there. Hi, students. <laughs> it's okay. You can stay over there. That's fine. It's Tuesday evenings, student ministries is beginning to gather. So for this month, it's more social things. And Tuesday evenings at 7 here on campus. So if you know a, a youngin a student ministries one. They should come and hang out. Okay, tonight we are continuing our four key character studies. We've, they're sort of in this midsection in the book of Acts, and we are looking at four key characters. So far we've looked at Stephen, the deacon and martyr, and then we looked at Philip, the evangelist who teleported. <laughs> and tonight we're going to look at Saul, Saul of Tarsus. Saul that will, you'll know well as the apostle Paul, later known as Paul. He's one of, if not the, I mean second to Jesus, most influential character in the New Testament. He penned much of your New Testament. He wrote it, and he has shaped the way that we see Christian theology, Christian mission. Paul has shaped much of that. And so tonight we're going we're gonna to look at sort of his backstory. When we first meet Paul, Saul, he's not a fan of the Christians, not at all. Uh, and we're going to look tonight, it's sort of what makes him tick. Um, what was so significant about this guy? What, what do we know about him and his backstory? I'm going to try to, like, you know, like, a good comic book story has an origin story? Anybody like comic book stories? The Batman, right? Batman's got Thomas and Martha Wayne and the, the tragedy that happens. Or... Superman's got his planet being destroyed and being raised on the farm in Smallville. Right? You guys know these stories? <clears throat> Flash has his story. Notice I didn't mention any Marvel stories because there's no good backstories to Marvel. Um, <laughs> that was for you guys. Anyways, I'm, I'm the only one that likes DC. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this great theologian missionary who wrote much of your New Testament, 
has a backstory. He's got an origin story, what, what made him who he was. And I think it's important to look at how Luke introduces him in the book of Acts. This hero of our faith is not introduced in that great of a way. Remember a few weeks ago, we looked at the life and the death of Stephen. We looked at uh, this, this deacon who began his ministry and was stoned to death. He was, at the end of chapter 6, Stephen was seized and falsely accused and put on trial. In chapter 7, you see sort of his defense statement. He, he preaches this sermon. Remember, I asked you guys to read it a few weeks ago, chapter 7. Anybody read it? You guys are quiet tonight. Stephen was on trial before the highest religious court that he could face. He was on trial. He was being examined by an honored, educated, powerful group of men. He'd been falsely accused. Accusations had been placed against him, and he seems to have lost all support. And what we see in that story, if you remember from a few weeks ago, is that his face shone with glory. His face reflected this perfect peace and confidence of God. His face seemed to have the same reflection that Moses had when he was in the presence of the Lord. Perfect peace. His face was not full of fear or anxiety or terror of what might come because ultimately he knew that the God that he served was in control, total and absolute control. He knew that his life was in the Lord's hand, that Jesus would never forsake him or leave him, even if he was stoned to death. The whole chapter 7 really is this great sermon of how God has ruled history. He's telling the story of the Jewish people. He walks through the key points of the Old Testament, the key things that shaped his culture and the leaders who were standing before him, accusing him. And Stephen rested confidently in his belief in the one true God. He didn't seem bothered by what was going on. He knew that God was in control. Stephen wasn't interested in defending himself, it seems. One of the commentators says this, apparently, he was apparently not making any special defense or in any way referring to his accusers or his false witnesses. He's not calling them out. And yet, in the way only the Lord can orchestrate, he's telling them their own story to accuse them, their own heritage to accuse them. You come to the end of Stephen's sermon, if you have your Bibles, because there's going to be a lot of Scripture tonight. Paul wrote much of your New Testament, so I'm going to let him introduce himself. So you have your Bibles, you're going to turn around different places. But in Acts chapter 7, is the closing of Stephen's sermon. Stephen says this, starting in verse 51. It's pretty sharp here. 
You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Well, what just happened there? Which of, the fa- which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws also delivered, uh, received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Verse 54. And now they heard these things. Now they heard these things. They were enraged. They ground their teeth at him. That's pretty angry, right? Grinding your teeth. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He has this open vision of heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the Father's right hand and he declares that vision. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's how Luke introduces Saul, Paul the Apostle. He's introduced here in this one line that they laid their garments at his feet. Stephen, the first martyr for his faith, is being stoned to death for preaching Christ. He's doing the very thing that we're called to do. He's, he's bridging this, this truth and grace thing. I love this, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago. In one minute, he's, he's pointing his fingers, and he's saying, you stiff-necked people, you've always rejected the Lord. And at the next breath, he's falling on his knees, asking that the sin is not held against them. He's balancing this grace and truth. And the people... They're left wondering. I think this, this is why Luke introduces Saul this way. This marked Saul. This was a very pivotal moment, a crucial event in Saul's life. Paul will later recount this event in Acts 22. You can turn there, Acts 22, verse 20. Saul's telling this story in his own words, Paul is. He says this, And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. This event marked him. It was a turning point for Saul. Ultimately, it's a turning point for the church as a whole. Acts chapter 8 
verse that we read at the opening tonight. The church is scattered. Scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria except for the apostles. But Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That word ravaging, that word ravaging is used in ancient Greek to refer of an, of an army destroying a city or of a wild animal tearing apart its meat. It's a very descriptive word. He's viciously attacking the Christians. He's going after them. So what happened here? Was the stoning of Stephen, Stephen sort of this uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne moment for him? This, this key event that shifted his life forever? This defining trauma that sets him on a path of violence and vengeance? Clearly, there's some backstory here. Think for a second about Saul. We're going to do some imagination here, right? Think about Saul's childhood, his upbringing, and his development. Think of a little boy, probably mature, way beyond his age, soaking up the stories of his ancestors, reading the Torah, the scriptures for himself, probably earlier than was normal, pretty studious little boy, reading big books, perhaps somewhat of a prodigy. He, he grew up in a devout home. He would have been a student of the Torah from an early age, committing it to memory, the first five books of your Bible, committing it to memory. He grew up reciting the Psalms regularly in his prayer, and three times a day he would declare in prayer and in allegiance, uh, his, his allegiance to the one true God. He would say three times a day, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This shaped him. He was faithful. He was all in, a committed Jewish boy. He was formed by the stories of his ancestors being delivered from the tyrants of Egypt in the Exodus and of the Lord giving his people the promised land. He knew the stories of his ancestors again and again wanting to be like the nations and rebelling and turning away and walking away from the one true God. He knew the stories of the, of the people wanting to be like the nations instead of being a distinct people that they were called to be. This is what it was all about for the Israelites. This is their, their food laws. All of it. Others eat all kinds of things. Others eat blood. Jews only eat clean food with careful procedures in place of how the animals were killed and cooked and handled. Others celebrate the nations have no rhythm to their lives. Jews keep the Sabbath, delighting in this weekly rhythm of anticipation, 
of rest and being with the Lord. Anticipation of the future promise of a day and a time when God would be with his people once again. And yet again and again and again, the ancient Israelites forgot these lessons. They forgot who they were, and they looked to the nations around them, and they wanted to be like them. And every time, bad things happened. And now in recent memory for Saul as a child, the Jewish people in Saul's day, and it wouldn't have been that long that they would have remembered the compromise that had led them to be led off in exile in Babylon. This was shaped deeply the culture that he grew up in. That's why some Jews, and Saul among them specifically, one of the first solid things that we know about Saul is that he saw himself following in this ancient tradition of zeal. He saw himself in this tradition of trying to keep his people pure. As a young boy, Saul learned the story of zeal early on. He learned the story as Sabbath after Sabbath, his father probably told him these stories as they sat around the table. The story that God's people would again and again walk away, and yet there's these brief flashes throughout history of David beating the Philistines, of Solomon bringing wisdom to the nations. That's how it's supposed to be, Saul would say. And yet, disappointment after disappointment, disaster seems to be the norm. Ten tribes have been lost. The two that are left are led to captivity in Babylon. For sure, this is the backdrop Sabbath meal after Sabbath meal, the family would talk about the fact that the nations were still a threat. The Romans are the new Babylon. They're still a threat. They're still, the, the nations ran the world as they, saw, as they saw fit. They didn't believe in Israel's God. Saul was a Pharisee. His father was a Pharisee. They took the scriptures seriously. They took the law seriously. I know Pharisees get a bad rap because of Jesus' interactions with them, but these, these were students of the scripture. They took seriously their faith, and they wanted to practice it with diligence and devotion. And one of the key themes throughout the Jewish scriptures is that theme of zeal. Saul would have grown up with these stories of zeal. Stories of, of men like Phineas or Elijah. 
You guys know the story of Phineas? These stories captivate young men. I actually, I, uh, I wanted to name one of our kids Phineas after this story. Man, we wouldn't let it happen. But Numbers 25, Finn Fisher, it would have been odd. Um, Numbers 25, you want to turn there. This is not a happy moment for Israelites. The people of Israel, Israel began to look to the daughters of Moab. Began to whore with the daughters of Moab is what the scripture says. They invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. This is not a good moment for the Israelites. Israel yoked herself with Baal had given itself over to the false gods, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. A plague breaks out. The Israelites are in trouble. A plague has broken out amongst the people. They've sinned, and they've gone the way of the nations. Jump down to verse 6. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation, right in front of everybody. He takes this Midianite woman. And while they were weeping at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the men of Israel into the chambers and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. You get what happened. Phineas takes a spear and he goes and he catches them in the, in the act of adultery and he runs them through and the plague stops after 24,000 people had already died. Keep going, verse 10 here. The Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous or zealous for my jealousy among them so that I do not, did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him, the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. It's a pretty intense story, and the result is equally intense. 
Phineas becomes this hero of zeal, the icon of what it looks like to be zealous for the Lord. And he receives the remarkable promise of perpetual personal covenant. His family would be priests forever. This story would shape the way the Israelites thought. This would shape the way a young Saul thought about the people around him and about his own people and his need to live out zeal before the Lord. This would be in their songs. Psalm 106, the psalm that I opened up our, our night tonight with, says this later on. We didn't read this part. Psalm 106, verse 28 through 31, recounts this story. would have been a part of their worship. It says this. They yoked themselves with Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds and plague broke out amongst them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened. Some translations say interceded. And the plague was stayed. And they counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. This was the stuff they sang about as a kid. It was the, the makeup of their worship songs, talking about this guy Phineas who, who with zeal ended this plague. That last line of that psalm, Psalm 31, or, uh, 106.31, is super important. It's crucial. The Hebrew word there, for righteousness, sadaka, it indicates this relationship or commitment, a covenantal relationship. So God counted Phineas's zealous action as righteousness. That means that this action is the hallmark of the covenant between God and his family, a covenant of perpetual priesthood. Zeal was the outward badge of this unbreakable relationship. So imagine with me, this young Saul, eager for God, eager for the law, storing all of this away for future reference, shaped by the Psalms and the stories of his ancestors, shaped by this story committing to himself, he will be zealous for God and zealous for the Torah. And perhaps God will use him as part of the great movement of covenant renewal. And maybe it will be counted to him as righteousness. When Paul the Apostle later describes himself, describes his earlier life, he describes it as being consumed with zeal for his ancestors' traditions. He was looking back on the Phineas-shaped history. And that's how he saw the motivations that led him to where he was going. Phineas wasn't the only hero that shaped their vision of zeal. Remember Elijah as he confronts the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. You guys remember the story? 
It's another one of the favorites. First Kings 18, he taunts them. He confronts them. All day long, remember, he says, maybe your God is using the restroom. Because remember, it's, it's a fun story if you haven't read it. Maybe your God's using the restroom, and that's not why he's not answering you. But ultimately, God shows up and responds to Elijah in miraculous way. God shows up. And Elijah gives the order to kill all the prophets of Baal. Or in more recent history for Saul, there's the stories in the Maccabean revolt of Judah the Hammer, the Maccabean uh, who would lead a revolt that would lead the Jewish people to, to have ruled their nation for almost 100 years against one of the most vile enemies of the Jewish people we've ever known. This is how Saul saw, him, Saul saw himself. This is the, the uh, lineage that he saw himself continuing in. Men like Phineas and Elijah and Judah the Hammer. Look at how he describes himself later in the book, Acts 21. Uh, you can go there if you want. Acts 21, verse 39. Paul replied, he's laying out his credentials here. This is why I said Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, and so he's going to explain his backstory Pretty good. So we're just going to read several of these passages. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he was given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, Hear the defense that I am now making. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia and brought up in this city, brought up in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as you are, as you are, as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. For from them I received the letters to the brothers and journeyed toward Damascus. Or Philippians 3, he says this, Philippians 3, verse 4 through 6, for though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks that he has reason for confidence in his flesh, I have more circumcised in the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Galatians 1, 13 through 14, he says, You have heard of my former life in, Ju in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And it was advancing 
And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father. This is how Saul saw himself in that lineage. At some point, Saul takes a a divergent path from his teacher Gamaliel. We looked at Gamaliel a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now. He said this, Gamaliel said, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if, this, uh, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow it. You might even be found opposing God. Gamaliel, Saul's teacher, his great teacher of the law, gives good wisdom there. Let this thing play out. If it's of God, it'll go. If it's not, it'll it'll fizzle out like the rest of the Messianic movements. They took his advice, except for one of his gifted young students. Saul stood and he watched. He approved. He even encouraged the stoning of Stephen. And in that moment, he saw his opportunity to continue in the way of zeal, to continue in the lineage of those men that had shaped the way he saw the world, for it to be counted to him as righteousness. Now, it's important, like Stephen and Peter and James and John and Simon the Zealot, they all grew up with the same stories. They were shaped by these same stories. They grew up with the same heroes, the same boyhood hopes and dreams. But something about Stephen's zeal, his proclamation of the gospel and telling of the story, and Saul's zeal were incongruent. They were formed by the same facts of the story. They had access to the same information the same key points. But for Stephen, his eyes were open to see the glory of the resurrected Messiah. He had beheld the beauty and the mystery of Christ. And he saw the fulfillment of all of that leading to Jesus. The gospel had transformed the info that was before him. The information that was before him had transformed it into something beyond the basic facts. Look at Stephen's sermon. Abraham, Jacob, the patriarchs, Joseph, the Exodus, Moses, the law. It's all there. He's telling the same story. The prophets. And for Stephen, it all points to Jesus. It all points to this glorified Messiah, And Saul would have none of it. Saul would have none of it. In his eyes, Stephen and these Messiah people, the way, it was perverting the truth of the Torah, the truth of his ancestral faith. They were leading the people away. And this could only end up in further exile. Remember Babylon. I could think he would remind himself, remember Babylon, guys? We're not going away. 
hold the line. And so we meet Saul, and he's ravaging the church. He's going door to door, house to house, dragging Christians off to prison. And just as his teacher Gamaliel had warned, he was opposing God. He was opposing God. God was scattering, like a farmer scatters seed, the church throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and throughout the ends of the earth. He was sending the church as missionaries to the surrounding area. He was using this persecution to expand the gospel. Now, we know the rest of the story. We know, ultimately, that Saul has an encounter with the risen Lord on the road to Damascus. We're, we'll look at that more next week. But at this point, I want to take a minute, just take a step back, and ask ourselves a few questions. Saul was zealous. He was passionate, and he was sincere. It's really important. This was not, like, flippant. He was sincere. He was not persecuting the church out of some hateful anger with God. He loved the Lord. He was doing what he thought was right, what, he, what would please God. He was doing the very thing that he thought would please God. In the book of Romans, talking about the Jews, Paul uh, he, he identifies with them. In Romans chapter 10, you can turn there. Romans 10, 1 through 4. This is kind of fun not having them on the screen, actually. You guys have to turn your Bibles. Romans chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, Paul says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He's speaking of the Jews. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The NLT explains this a little bit clarifies it. The NLT says it this way, for I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. They do not understand God's way of making people right with himself, refusing to accept God's way. They cling to their own way. Misdirected zeal. They cling to their own way of getting people right. I think this is still a struggle that we have. This is still a reality for us that we misplace and we misdirect our zeal. I think if we think about it, think with Paul, some of these men who watched the stoning of Stephen, they were zealous for God. Saul was zealous for God. But Paul says that zeal was not based in knowledge. And that 
in particular that knowledge is an experienced knowledge. That zeal was not based in anything substantial. Zeal alone is not enough. It's not enough to just be passionate about something. People are passionate and zealous about so many things that have absolutely no bearing on eternity. Our culture is obsessed with zeal, with passion. What's your passion? Go after that thing that you're passionate about. Do what you're passionate about. I named a coffee shop devout, which is like, it kind of means the same thing, devoted. People are passionate about food and about drink, about their diets and their, their workouts. Talk to a vegan. Sorry, vegans. People are passionate about causes, the environment, animals, civil rights, whatever it is. People are zealous for their family, even good things, their heritage, their, their nation, their rights, their privileges. These are good things. They're zealous about their work, passionate about what they do, their investments. There's nothing inherently wrong with being a passionate person. Please don't think I'm saying that. There's nothing wrong with being passionate. I've heard it said that zeal is like a gas pedal and truth is like a steering wheel. If you don't know where you're driving, don't put your foot down harder. Don't go faster. You need to know the direction when you're lost, not simply go, go hard or go home. Go fast. <laughs> it doesn't work. But try it. Just drive faster. You'll get there. Zeal is like, it's like fire in your furnace or in your water heater. It's an essential element. It warms the water. It warms the air for your house. It creates an environment that is good to live in. But if it gets out of that place where it's supposed to be, and the fire is now on the curtains or on the chairs, that's a problem right? Misplaced zeal is like a, all these analogies here, it's like a gun in the hand of a madman. Misplaced zeal is zeal for God rather than the zeal of God. Our God is the holy, loving God. Truthful zeal is one that is in his image. This is how Paul later on would, would view his youthful zeal. It was zeal, but it was based on bad experience, bad information. Motivated by a jealous desire to protect his heritage to protect his religious heritage. He and the other zealots for sure thought they were right. They made no allowance that they might have gone astray. There was no option in their mind that they could be wrong. 
They were confident that God was pleased with them and with their persecution of the church. Saul's zeal was sincere, but ultimately he came to see that his zeal was sincerely wrong. Totally wrong. So tonight, I want us to take some time and to kind of think through two sides of this. Two applications. We'll look at this a little bit more next week, but reflecting even on what we looked at last week, thinking ahead to Paul's Damascus Road conversion, I think it's important to remember that there are people in our communities who are zealous, passionate about all sorts of things that put them at odds with our faith. That put them, they might even see us as their enemies. And it's crucial for us to remember that God's grace is stronger than any misplaced zeal. Saul, the persecutor, is Paul, the apostle. The church, slowly at first, accepted him in when he had this revelation of Jesus, when he saw the risen Lord. The church accepted him into the family, this persecutor, who was ravishing the church. This violent, zealot persecutor is brought into the family. This is the way of Jesus. It's quite possible, we'll look at this more, but that Saul's family would disown him. Think about his upbringing as a young Pharisee in a family of Pharisees. And he is now following this Messiah, Jesus. In the church, he found family. He was brought in. He was accepted and brought in close as a brother. This is how the church has always worked. This is how the church is supposed to work. And there will be a day when those who are right now passionately opposed zealously opposed to what we teach will see the folly and want family. And it's our responsibility to bring them in. To lead them in the way of discipleship. Secondly, do we find ourselves misplacing our zeal, misdirecting our zeal, passionate for things that we should not be passionate about, sometimes even good things, just not the right thing. Augustine says, the essence of sin is disordered love. Disordered love. The idea here is that Disordered love means that we often love less important things more than more important things less than we ought to. 
And this is a wrong prioritization that leads to what Augustine calls disordered love, and he says that's the, that's the beginning of all sin. Many times, we view people as a means to an end. We view God as a means to an end. And our priorities and our passions and the things that we're zealous about get misordered. Sometimes we seek God primarily because he could be useful rather than seeking him purely because he's glorious and beautiful and worthy. We relate to him as useful to us and helpful to achieve something rather than looking to his agenda for our life, his purpose and his calling, his, his leading and his guidance. I'm not saying don't be passionate. Be passionate, but do so with knowledge, the leading of the Spirit, with, with submitting it to the lordship and leadership of Jesus, allowing him to guide your passions. I think ultimately, the Lord knew he needed a zealot to write much of the New Testament, to take the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles. He needed somebody like Paul that was zealous, passionate, maybe even a little extreme. The question is, are our passions in order? Is our zeal rightly ordered? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you For these examples we have in the scripture of men who have, men and women who have gone after you, who have pursued you, who have lived passionately. God, I pray that in this house, in this community, we would be passionate for the right things, that our Loves would be in order, that our passions would be rightly ordered, that you would be chief amongst all the things that we love and that we do. God, lead us, guide us. Help us to be a people of grace and truth sometimes feeling contradictory even. Radical truth, but extravagant grace. Jesus, we love you. In Jesus' name.